Uh, well, let me add to the welcomes you've already received this afternoon. Welcome again to Christ Our Refuge. Particular welcome to you if this is your first time with us. We're so glad that you're here. Whether you're looking for a church, whether you're just visiting this week, we hope and trust you'll get to know Jesus better, know Christ better as a result of gathering with us. Uh, you might have noticed in the prayer from Megan, we prayed for a bunch of uh, churches that are in our diocese across Australia. There's now six. Uh, we praise God for them. Today is also something called GAFCON Sunday. Uh, we're part of a global Anglican network of churches. Uh, and so I'm going to um, begin right now by using a, a prayer that Christians all around the world will actually pray today in praying for our network of churches. And so uh, why don't you pray with me? And I'll pray for our time in God's word as well. Eternal God and gracious Father, whose blessed Son, Jesus Christ, died for our redemption, commissioned his disciples to preach the good news and sent the indwelling Holy Spirit in every generation to embrace and proclaim salvation in Christ alone. Arise and defend your church, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. Shine the light of your holy word upon hearts, darkened by error and strengthen the work of Gafcon, so that the Anglican communion throughout the world proclaims Christ faithfully to the nations, that captives may be set free, the straying rescued, and the confused restored. Bind your children together in truth, love, unity, and courage, that we, with all your saints, may inherit your eternal kingdom through our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that right now, you would enable us to understand the word we've just heard, giving us the will to put it into practice. And we pray this boldly and confidently through Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, there's various stories uh, throughout Greek and Roman history where leaders and significant figures have faced death and their approach has been calm and dispassionate. For example... Socrates, in the midst of his execution, reportedly was throwing out one-liners, totally cool and totally removed. In ancient Jewish literature, the, the deaths of major heroes weren't cool and unfazed like the Greeks, but were depicted as fearless, praising God as they're killed by their enemies. Even more recently in Christian history, there are stories told of the martyrs who approach death confidently. For example, two of our Anglican forebears, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, they were burned at the stake for their faith in the 1500s in Oxford. Side by side, when the fire was lit, Latimer was reported to have said these words, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Today, we arrive in Mark chapter 14, and we arrive at the night that Jesus is betrayed, denied, and deserted by his friends. And as he comes to face to face with his impending death, he's certainly not cool and unfazed like the ancient Greeks, a fearless hero like the ancient Jews, or even confident like the Christian martyrs. I want you to notice Jesus' posture not long before his arrest. Pick it up with me, Mark chapter 14, verse 32. It says this, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. 
And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. If you've been tracking with us the last few weeks, up until this point, Jesus has been boldly marching towards his end. Remember, he's outplayed the religious leaders. He's shown compassion to the needy in his path. He has taught the countercultural nature of being a member of the kingdom of God. And yet now, it describes Jesus like this, greatly distressed, troubled. His soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Now, the root word for greatly distressed has the idea of astonishment. In this moment, something has stunned Jesus. Now, the verb behind the word there for troubled uh, carries the idea to be overcome with horror. Jesus is horrified. He's physically affected by this moment. His, His sorrow is so great that he feels like dying, even unto death. Question, why? Why is Jesus so tormented in the face of death? Now, to answer that question, we're going to focus on just two sections of this significant chapter. It's a long chapter. It's not possible to cover everything from the reading, let alone the second half of the chapter as well. And so we're going to focus in on two things. First, we're going to focus on the events that took place in the Garden of Gethsemane between Jesus and his father. And then second, we're going to go back earlier on and consider the events that took place in the upper room between Jesus and his disciples. But if you've got the question, the question is, why is Jesus so tormented in the face of death? Well, it's because, number one, Jesus will drink the cup of judgment. Jesus will drink the cup of judgment. You know, throughout Jesus' ministry, he has consistently taken time out to pray to his fathers. His disciples have seen this, and so here Jesus does it again. But there's something different about this time of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. We've already heard, as we read moments ago in verse 33 and verse 34, that Jesus' state of torment is on display in this, on this occasion. And then we see exactly why. Have a look at verse 35. It says, And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Mark doesn't want us to miss the significance. Dramatically, Jesus falls to the ground. And his prayer request is that the hour might pass from him. The hour is his impending death. His request if it wasn't obvious, is to avoid the cross. If at all possible, Abba, Father, the most intimate of language, like a son crying out to his daddy, Dad, Father, 
Is there any other way? Remove this cup from me. You see, Jesus is about to drink from this cup. And so the question is, well, what is this cup? Why is it so horrific to conceive of drinking from this cup? Well, in the Old Testament, the cup is a metaphor for the judgment of God on human, human wickedness. If we had more time, you could see this image explained in detail in the prophets in places like Ezekiel 23, uh, Isaiah 51. But it's also spoken of in the Psalms. And it says this in Psalm 75, verse 8, Psalm 75, verse 8. It says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The Lord is holding this cup. It is bitter. It will be poured out. The wicked must drink from it. You know, one truth throughout the Bible that is hard to swallow, so to speak, but important to grasp, if true, is that God is righteously angry at the sin, rebellion and wickedness of humanity. You see, sin is not only rebellion against God, where we break his rules. It is also a declaration of autonomy from God, where we make our own rules. And the Bible teaches us the uncomfortable truth that we're all guilty of sin of breaking his rules, of making up our own rules. And so for God to be a just, right and fair judge, he cannot leave sin unpunished. It cannot simply be swept under the carpet. It must be dealt with. You see, the horror that awaits Jesus is not the pain of crucifixion, though it is great. Crucifixion was a method of uh, execution invented to inflict as much pain as possible, to prolong that pain for as long as possible. And yet the horror is the prospect of drinking from this cup. Jesus drinking the cup of judgment, the cup of God's wrath and his anger, that's supposed to be directed towards sinful humanity. Because remember that Jesus is the only one of whom it could be said he was without sin. And so Jesus, the one who is God come among us in the Bible, we, we learn that God is one. There is only one God, but there are three persons within the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here we have God the Son, Jesus, who has enjoyed a perfect relationship with his Father, with the Spirit. Jesus, who is God the Son, who has always lived and walked in obedience, not once broken his Father's rules, not once set up his own set of rules. He has always loved his Father. And honored him. He has always loved his neighbor. And so you see, the greatest pain of the cross that Jesus is about to bear is that the cup of God's judgment upon our sin will be drunk by Jesus, the sinless Savior. Jesus, the Lord, the one who's holding the cup, who should be distributing it to wicked humanity, Jesus will drink it down to the dregs. Jesus' experience in this moment is a foretaste of what he will experience on the cross. And so he staggers and he prays, Father, is there any other way? It's a candid moment. And in this moment of anguish and torment, we read that his disciples keep falling asleep. In Jesus' time of need, his friends are found floundering. Three times Jesus prays the same thing. Three times. 
Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And yet even in Jesus' acknowledgement of the pain ahead, he is determined to keep trusting his Father's will for him, the Son, and his Father's will for the rest of the world. Although Jesus knows the pain involved in drinking the cup of judgment, Jesus concludes the garden scene resolute and determined to go to the cross. We read in verse 41, Mark 14, verse 41, And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The hour has come. Jesus marches towards the cross, knowing the physical, emotional and spiritual pain that awaits. But, but why, did he, why did he continue on? Because this is why he came. He has spoken since the opening chapter of Mark's gospel of his purpose in coming to earth. This was his mission. It's not that the, the father has twisted the son's arm and sent him unwillingly to the cross. In fact, we read elsewhere in the New Testament before the foundation of the world, God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit had planned that one day Jesus... Before sin had even happened, one day Jesus would come to rescue the world from their sin. It's just that now as that moment draws near, understandably, Jesus feels the pain of what is about to happen. Jesus knew there was no other way. The penalty of sin is death and judgment. And so Jesus willingly takes that death and judgment as he willingly heads to the cross to drink the cup of God's wrath. How should we respond to these events? Horror at how serious and significant sin is and how dire are the consequences of sin Wonder at the roar and intimate moment between the Father and the Son. And gratitude that Jesus would drink that cup on our behalf out of a deep, deep love for us. God loves you. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God loves you. And Jesus, who is God the Son, willingly came. He lived the life that we failed to live and then he died the death that we deserve by drinking that cup of judgment down to its dregs. We are loved. Can you hear me? You are loved. It might be that as you've arrived at church this afternoon, you feel unloved. You feel alone. You feel forgotten. And while there may be human relationships where those feelings in this life are warranted, I want you to know this. You are loved by God. Regardless of what you're feeling. 
regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your circumstances because of the things that are being done to you and the ways you've been rejected, regardless of your circumstances because of the ways that you've blown it and the ways that you know you fall short of the glory of God and continue to sin against Him. You are loved by God. Look, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, we want to say you're welcome to be here. And we hope and trust that this will be a place, a safe space, where you can hear about what God has done for you. And it might well be that you're not a Christian. You've heard lots of this before, and yet you're not a Christian because you've doubted that God could actually love you or accept you. And yet this scene here gives you a window into how deep God's love in Christ Jesus is for you. You know, we've asked the question, why is Jesus so tormented in the face of death? Well, the first thing we've seen, it's because Jesus is about to, Jesus will drink the cup of judgment. And this leads to our second of two points, that because Jesus will drink the cup of judgment, number two, disciples will drink the cup of salvation. That is good news. Disciples will drink the cup of salvation. A disciple uh, is a follower of Jesus. And, and the cup of salvation is available, available to be drunk by the disciples who appear here in Mark chapter 14. And indeed, all disciples, all followers of Jesus throughout all time. You know, we began in the garden, uh, but we're now going to go back to the scene from earlier in the night where Jesus had gathered his disciples in verse 15... Uh, in an upper room. Uh, now, we won't reread that whole section, but in verse, uh, kind of scan your eyes over it. In verse 12 to verse 16, we see Jesus goes to great lengths to get his disciples to get things ready for the Passover celebration. Then in verse 17 down to verse 21, we see the beginning of their upper room gathering and the revelation that one of them will betray Jesus. Now, this, this meal that they're sharing was the most significant time of the year for Israel as they celebrate the Passover. If you're new to Jesus, if you're new to the Bible and you're new to Christianity, uh, if you're new to the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, that's kind of one of the big things to understand about how God related to his people, Israel, in the Old Testament. The Passover was the high point of their history. After some 400 years of slavery in Egypt, God through his initiative, rescued his people through his mighty hand. After a series of plagues of judgment upon Egypt were ignored by Pharaoh, God came most powerfully in the 10th plague. And in this plague, all the firstborns in Egypt, humans and livestock, would be struck down on one night of terror as God would come in judgment. But for all who sacrificed a lamb, and painted its blood on the doorframe of their homes. Everyone in those homes was spared as the angel of the Lord would pass over those homes and the firstborns were saved from judgment. You know, within a short time, their exodus was complete as they were saved on that night of destruction and then safely taken out of Egypt. And so each year after those events, Israel was to celebrate and remember the mighty display of God in rescuing them. 
And every year at Passover, they would sacrifice a lamb and they'd look back to that great act of salvation. However, this Passover that Jesus is about to sit down and share with his disciples will be different. He departs from that well-known script that Israel has rehearsed for so many years. Pick it up with me in Mark chapter 14, uh, verse 22. It says, as they were eating, he, Jesus, took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What a moment. This is my body. This is my blood. From now on, Jesus says, when you celebrate this meal, celebrate me. The great act of salvation will no longer be the Exodus and the Passover. But what Jesus is about to do in the sacrifice of his body and his blood. Did you notice, have you ever noticed this before, that there is no mention of lamb at their Passover table? We've got mention of bread. We've got mention of wine. But we have no mention of lamb upon that table. How can it be Passover without lamb? I love this insight from Tim Keller. He said, there was no lamb on the table because the lamb of God was at the table. Jesus was the main course. Jesus is the lamb of God. All those lambs that were sacrificed on the original night of Passover. And all those lambs that have been sacrificed in the many years since Passover. were all ultimately pointing towards Jesus. The once and for all Lamb of God. Jesus who at the cross takes away the sin of the world. You know one of the things I recently learned is that Israel used to sing... Uh, Psalm 115 to 118. Go have a read of Psalm 115 to Psalm 118. And they used to sing those psalms around the Passover table. Check out one of the, uh, one of the quotes from Psalm 116. It says this in verse 12 and 13. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. The invitation... That hundreds of years of their history had taught them was that Israel could lift up the cup of salvation. And the invitation to us today is to lift up the cup of salvation, to take hold of all that God has done for you in Christ on your behalf. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves. We've sung Amazing Grace. It's trusting in Jesus and God's grace to us in Him. And what he has done in the sacrifice of his body and blood. And in his resurrection that gives new life. 
So brothers and sisters, I want to invite you this afternoon to lift up the cup of salvation. We're going to flow straight into sharing the Lord's Supper together. Remembering with gratitude the salvation that Jesus offers to us through his body and blood given. That we can indeed lift up the cup of salvation and drink from it. Because Jesus has first lifted up the cup of judgment and drunk from it on our behalf. He is judged in our place that we can be saved perfectly through his life given. And so brothers and sisters, as we come to the table, let's confess our sins out loud together to Almighty God. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you made all things and you call everyone to account. With shame we confess the sins we have committed against you in thought, word and deed. We rightly deserve your condemnation. We turn from our sins and are truly sorry for them. They are a burden we cannot bear. Have mercy on us, most merciful Father. For the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us all that is past. Enable us to serve and please you in newness of life to your honour and glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I have good news for you. And that is this, that all who confess their sin can know the assurance of forgiveness because of the finished work of Jesus. Look at these stunning words that we read in 1 John. It says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, the one who turns aside the wrath of God for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so in a moment, we are going to come to the Lord's table. Uh, and I love the action of physically standing and physically coming to the Lord's table. We, we literally come with, with nothing in our hands, like starving people begging for bread. We come to take hold of Christ, our servant King. We take hold of Christ and we feed on Him in our hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. And so as we come to this table, let's pray one more prayer out loud together, a prayer of humble access together. We do not presume to come to your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your many and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs from under your table, but you are the same Lord whose nature is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Amen. Friends, if you are a follower of Jesus, trusting in his finished work at the cross, you are welcome to come to the table today. Uh, your children are welcome to come to the table today, but please uh, use your own discretion on how you do that. Uh, if nothing else, make sure you talk about the significance of what is going on in this meal. Uh, we'll kind of make a line in a moment down this aisle here. Uh, I'll be on your right, Tara will be on your left. Come to me, uh, grab some bread, 
uh, and then grab some juice from Tara um, and, uh, and there's a bin over there you can put your cups in as well. But look, uh, as well as being invited to this table, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, again, you are so welcome here. We are so glad that you're here. But if you're not yet following Jesus, this is a family meal moment. And so please use this time to reflect on God's love for us in Christ. Um, while we're uh, participating in this meal and spending some time reflecting, uh, Eliza will be playing one of her own songs, How Deep, uh, that I hope and trust will help us all to meditate uh, on the love of Christ together. But brothers and sisters, when you're ready, uh, please come forward and let's, let's raise the cup of salvation and celebrate all that we have in Christ Jesus, our risen Saviour and ruling King. Amen.